Good afternoon. War in Sudan, Israel's kleptocracy on Earth Day, a fight over water in the Middle East, a behemoth defense budget, and Adams demands action from Washington on migration. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo, and from New York City, this is The Torch for Sunday, April 23, 2023. At least 78 people have been killed and hundreds injured in a stampede in Yemen's capital. The tragedy happened Wednesday as hundreds of people crowded into a school in Sana'a, hoping to get a charitable donation of about $10 handed out by merchants to mark the final days of Ramadan. About 300 people were injured and the organizers of the event are being detained. Sana'a has been under Houthi control since 2014 after defeating the Saudi-backed government. A coalition led by the Saudis invaded a year later. More than 150,000 people have been killed, creating one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters. More than 21 million people depend on assistance by the United Nations. Meanwhile, fighting continued for a fifth day in Khartoum, capital of Sudan, with no signs of a truce. The Sudanese army and its rapid support force rivals are closing in on the capital and battling throughout the country. Nearly 300 have died in the conflict. A 24-hour ceasefire was ignored by both sides. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres pleaded for a truce to allow civilians to escape the fighting. As an immediate priority... I appeal for a ceasefire to take place for at least three days, marking the Eid al-Fitr celebrations to allow civilians trapped in conflict zones to escape and to seek medical treatment, food, and other essential supplies. This must be the first step in providing respite from the fighting and paving the way for a permanent ceasefire. The Biden administration says it's ready to impose new sanctions on leaders of the rival factions, a power struggle between two generals that erupted into full-scale conflict. Sudan has a strong pro-democracy movement that has criticized the United States and other Western countries for funding the military leaders. Ghanaian-born foreign policy analyst and advocate Ni Akueta has been following events in the vast country located in eastern Africa. Akueta says coverage of the spreading warfare in Sudan has failed to look at its underlying causes and the role of the United States in opposing democratic change in Africa. I'm glad these big newspaper dailies are covering it, but I think they are covering it so superficially, even Al Jazeera, they are ignoring the major elements of the story of how we got here. They are forgetting the U.S. role in this. By every U.S. administration all the way since Reagan, even the Biden people, this has been boiling and they've been ignoring it. The other piece of it that I think is so important to bring it forward quickly is the U.S., if you look across North Africa, to the heart of the Middle East. The U.S. does not want democracy anywhere in the Middle East because Western policies in those areas have been so bad that the U.S. and the West are afraid of the people. They would rather have religious leaders, okay, or military dictators, or kings, like the king of Saudi Arabia or the king of Jordan. They just don't want democracy because they know the people there including when they look at the treatment of Palestinians. Public opinion is against Western policies, and therefore the West wants dictators that will listen to them. They support those people. In Sudan, these two factions of the military actually used to be together, 
And the Sudanese people have been so admirable. I'm an immigrant from Ghana. I have been here in the U.S. since the 70s when I came here for grad school. I'm convinced that Africa needs democracy. We have so many divisions in every single African country because you have different ethnic groups. Sometimes you have religion laid over it. It's the same in Sudan. And I think when you have that identity diversity, dictatorships are very dangerous because people only see the identity of the dictator. It will quickly explode into identity wars, usually tribal wars, and that scares me. I think that's what just happened in Ethiopia. It has happened in Nigeria with the Afro war. It's flared up in Kenya. There's Rwanda. And these are where it's blown into really wars that will get to the international news. So it's my big fear. The reassertion of the past, the past coming is still there. You're absolutely right. So, you know, as I was there, I was talking to a bunch of... No, you're right. I got the idea from listening to you. You're the right one. (laughs) You know, so if we want to get back to a place where you have autocratic government that say we need our own sphere of influence and a big country can just gobble up a little country, we were colonized. When I was born in Ghana, Ghana was the Gold Coast. So I tell people, I know what it is to live in a colony where my birth certificate said I wasn't a citizen. It says I belong to the British Empire, okay? Where were you when the Queen Elizabeth II died? I was on Jesse Jackson's show for about a week, or most of it run by his daughter. And I was blasting away at the Queen that, yes, I mean, I admire her devotion to duty. On her deathbed, she was still doing her duty of handling prime ministers will go see her to resign. But that was it. People are not looking at the system that she headed. I was blasting away at her and I was telling someone, I can't wait for next month when they coronate her. When she is going to Westminster to be coronated, he's not going to ride in a car. He's going to ride in a carriage. There's gold and diamonds all over that carriage. I know one piece of the diamond that the British stole, they stole from India. The rest of it from Sierra Leone and South Africa and Ghana. I am a fierce critic of the, of the British, even more of the French, of the whole colonial thing. I like the fact that the U.S. is working on its democracy. And Bill, of course, comes at me sometimes that our democracy is not as great as you think. But I say, look, when I compare it to China or Russia or even the Europeans, because the Europeans, their democracy is only for white Europeans. Mm. So for me, America is maybe the best among the bad lot. Anyway, I'm drifting, so (laughs) please interrupt me. We're looking at images of large-scale warfare, and as you said, it has tribal connotations we haven't seen for a long time. Wars are so hard to predict, especially when you are like, what? 5,000, 6,000 miles away, you are not a military expert. I'm not sure which one will win, and it seems to me Sudan has been such a turmoil for a long time. They had given me hope for the last two or three years, I would say, of all the African countries. Sudan is actually the one that gives me hope because of the civilians who have challenged the military. They have been saying, no, we want civilian rule. And there were so many women leading it. 
But now I think the military is showing that they are going to crush the whole thing. So whichever of them wins, I'm pretty pessimistic because what I want is for the military to hand over to the civilians for the army to be small and go back to the barracks. Where Sudan is, it is very much an African country, of course, but it is also very much a Middle Eastern country. The two big external players, regional players, are the Egyptians who are backing the regular army and the United Arab Emirates who are backing the rapid force. None of those people want democracy. How will it turn out militarily? I am not sure, but I'm pretty convinced that however it ends, the military will come out much stronger. People will be so tired of the fighting that they'll say, well, now that we've got the military in charge, whether they make up or one side wins, okay, now we are tired of Sudan, we want to move elsewhere. And the civilian movement for democracy will lose. That's my pessimism about it. Because we'll then wind up with mm -hmm. another uh, military governing the country. And it's breaking my heart. The U.S. dropped the ball. So many U.S. administrations have dropped the ball because they did not want to put pressure on the military to say leave. If they wanted to do it, they could do it. Because Egypt and UAE, I'm now talking about the Biden, Biden people, as for Trump, he didn't even try. Trump was backing all this military, including in Libya. <laughs> he even withdrew U.S. troops there to make it easier for Haftar to take over Tripoli. That's how bad Trump was. Biden is a little better, but on Sudan, they too, they don't want to put pressure on the military to leave. Because of what happened in Afghanistan, that they're fearful of a power vacuum and they having to leave in another one of these very embarrassing retreats of American forces from a former colony? Or? That contributed a little bit to it, but I think that attitude has been there for a long time. What's happening in, in Ukraine actually shows the bankruptcy of that policy because we are going through one of those times when the world order sort of changes. People call it new world order. I think we should call it world order revised because you change some things, but not everything. On one side, you are the Russians and the Chinese who don't make no pretense of any kind of democracy. It's the democracies which are the authoritarians. In Africa, the U.S. talks a good game about democracy, but then if you look at its policies, Way before Afghanistan, way before, any, in fact, I tell the Americans, U.S. supporting authoritarians even before Africa became independent because you supported apartheid in South Africa. The U.S. has supported apartheid. More than three centuries of white supremacy. And they all enjoyed support from the Americans in the West. It reached a peak under Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. The U.S. in Africa is like they turn the democracy game, but there are so many instances where they, they support authoritarians, they want strong men. And now in the age when they are telling the world, back us against the authoritarians so that the world doesn't go the wrong way, they still in Africa. Sometimes they think, oh, the Africans won't notice that we say we are a democracy and we are supporting the democratic side in this war in Ukraine, but they have so many favorite African leaders that are 
clear authoritarian and dictators and those get the most money from the Americans and it just drives me crazy and I say you are shooting yourself in the foot so don't go tell the Africans that oh they should support you the Americans talk about democracy but we see their best friends on the continent are authoritarian all of that is the context of Sudan of course the war should stop because it's in the middle of the big twin cities that are the center of Sudan Khartoum and Omdurma. Um, These armies cover the whole country. The war could spread everywhere, so when people are pushing for a, a ceasefire, I'm for that. I cannot be hopeful. What is going on is going to be Sudan's slow, difficult journey towards democracy. I think the war will kill the prospects for democracy in Sudan, and that breaks my heart. Ni Akueta is a Ghanaian-born foreign policy analyst and advocate. He lives in Washington, D.C. In recent tribal fighting in nearby Ethiopia, nearly half a million people have died. Meanwhile, Israel says it's using its connections with the generals on both sides of the conflict in Sudan to urge them to end the fighting. Sudan was part of the Abraham Accords, a treaty brokered under former President Donald Trump between Israel and several Arab countries in 2020. But a military takeover the following year halted U.S. aid and froze relations with Israel. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt are also deeply involved in Sudan. And more news from Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is seeking to appoint a far-right lawmaker as Israel's consul general in New York. May Golan, a Knesset member previously aligned with an extremist party, was expected to become a minister. But following the resignation of a more liberal figure who held a job previously, Netanyahu reportedly picked Golan for the job. Golan would likely be the most right-wing lawmaker to take the diplomatic position. The move comes as the nation has been racked by nearly four months of massive protests by Israelis who are incensed by the ruling coalition's plans to control the Supreme Court, even as Netanyahu faces at least three corruption scandals. Last week, the Prime Minister appeared on Meet the Press to hail Israel's special relationship with the United States. America is Israel's indispensable and by far the best ally. But I want to tell you, I don't think you have a better ally in the world than Israel, because Israel has become a great technological power yeah. and a great asset to I, the United States. And speaking, our cooperation, mutual right. cooperation, saves a lot of American and Israeli lives. Last year, the United States provided $3.8 billion in military aid to Israel, up from the decade average of about $3 billion a year. Richard Silverstein follows closely events in Israel. He tells the news the unrest is about democracy for Jewish Israelis. Democracy in Israel is a very um, strange animal because there's democracy for Jews and there's no democracy for non-Jews. The Palestinian minority, the Israeli-Palestinian minority, has much less rights than the Jewish majority. The protests in Israel are protests by Jews on behalf of their own democracy. Is democracy for Jews dead, <laughs> is the question. And no, I don't think it is, but it's 15 weeks already, so it's obviously going to be a long-term struggle. And it will depend on whether the government falls or whether it goes, rams everything through. Then you've got the logjam, the, the barrier of the Supreme Court itself, which can rule all of this legislation null and void. 
the government is going to try to skew the Supreme Court justices, appoint ones that are willing to bow to the right-wing government. So it may be that in the long term they can end democracy, can destroy the Supreme Court. The process is going to be complicated and long. Is it like a kleptocracy, maybe? Yes, it's definitely a kleptocracy. And not only kleptocracy, it's a, an economic system in which the oligarchs, they're called the 18 families, in Israel own 60% of the capital in the entire country. Even though it's supposedly a capitalist economy with equal opportunities for everybody, in reality, the major companies are owned by these 18 families. Everybody has their hand in the till, thoroughly corrupt from the highest, most complicated levels of the oligarchs all the way down to lower level. Netanyahu is on trial right now for three different counts of corruption. They want to appoint a senior minister who's been convicted twice of corruption and failing to pay taxes or concealing what he needs to pay in taxes. All of the legislation, a lot of it, is to bury any possibility of holding any of them accountable for their corrupt dealings. What's been happening on the Temple Mount is a lot of violence there. Israel kind of has a split personality because there's this democracy movement which is going to hopefully protect democracy, at least for the Jews. But on the other hand, you've got this whole other reality going on, which is what's happening in the settlements, what's happening to Palestinians of the West Bank, and what Israel is doing not only in Al-Aqsa, but also to Christians. Orthodox Easter, and the police were beating Christians who wanted to get to the ceremony uh, called Holy Fire Ceremony. And they put an arbitrary limit on how many Christians could gather for this. And then the, the ones who didn't make it, they started beating them in the streets of the old city on video. This whole issue of religion, religion they, is basically weaponized on behalf of the Israeli state. Are they trying to evict the other religions? They can't quite do that. But yes, basically what they are doing is enforcing Judeo-supremacy. The Jewish religion is going to be paramount, and it already is. I mean, that's what the nation-state law did a couple of years ago. It basically eliminated any uh, Arab or Palestinian status within the Israeli state. They want to make all the other religions, Islam, Christianity, understand that they are under the heel of the Israeli government, and they're vulnerable to attack not just by the state itself, but also by the settlers. You have the border police beating the Christians, but when that's not happening, the settlers are engaging in attacks against Christian churches. All these other non-Jewish religions are really under the boot heel of the Israeli state. Richard Silverstein closely follows events in Israel. Two weeks ago, Israeli police clashed with Palestinians at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. 
And April 22nd marks Earth Day, a celebration of the environment that began in 1970. Events are scheduled across the country and throughout the world. The celebrations come as the entire globe is dealing with the shocks of man-made climate change, a byproduct of an industrial civilization that's increased greenhouse gas levels not seen in millions of years. The result has been larger and more violent storms, droughts, and sea level rise threatening coastal cities and agriculture in a hungry and populous world. In the desert nations of the Middle East, water has been at the source of conflict for decades. As Israel has grown into a high-income, world-class industrial power and its neighbors have themselves been developing at a fast pace, the demand for water has outstripped the supply. Writer and activist Phyllis Bennis is a leading advocate for Palestinian rights. She says, while Israel can't stop climate change, their police and army can shift the pain to the Palestinians. They can certainly go very far in determining who's going to suffer the most from climate change. So if you look, for example, at the map of the wall that Israel built in the West Bank, 85% of which is not on the border between the Palestinian territories and Israel proper, it's inside the Palestinian territories, meaning a big chunk, about 15% of the West Bank is now on the Israeli side of the wall. If you look at the map of the wall and superimpose on it a map of the six major water aquifers in all of Israel and Palestine together, what do you see? What a surprise. They're all just within the wall. So the wall gives Israel control of all of the major water access in the region. One of the things that means is that what's already true, which is the kind of water apartheid that exists in the West Bank and in Gaza, where Israel controls all the water, you have these gleaming new settlement cities filled with swimming pools and lawns with sprinklers for the children to run through, what every child should have, right? Every child in the world should be able to run through sprinklers on a green lawn on a, on a summer day. But at the other side of those hilltop settlements, including the big city settlements, you have Palestinian villages that have lived there for hundreds of years, in many cases over a thousand years, and in those situations people have learned to live with the lack of water being easily available, they've built cisterns, they've built ways of coping, none of which are now available to them. The water is being, has been and continues to be stolen. So the question of climate change and what it means for water, in Gaza you have a complete lack of potable water. More than 90% of the population has no access to drinkable water. The little amount of water that's available is too salty to be used. It's almost eliminating agriculture in Gaza as a result. And the water that is used has to be purchased from the Israeli water company at exploitative rates when it belongs originally to the Palestinians in the first place. There's nothing about the Israeli occupation which is not made worse by climate change and there's nothing about climate change that is not defined in terms of the impact on people by the political and economic realities in which they live. Meanwhile, in Syria, the Israel Defense Forces dropped leaflets warning Syrian soldiers to stop cooperating with Iranian-backed militias. The leaflets came hours after artillery strikes on sites belonging to Hezbollah. Israel is alleged to have carried out a number of strikes in Syria this month. The attacks come as Syria and Turkey are recovering from a devastating earthquake that killed over 7,000 people in Syria. Benes says the dysfunctional politics in the region have made the suffering worse. 
Well, it's been a disaster. And although this was a natural disaster, certainly climate change is making earthquakes more frequent, but this was a natural disaster. But the impact of it was completely unnatural. The impact was completely driven by human realities, economic, political, social realities. One of those big realities in Syria has been crippling economic sanctions that have been in place for more than a decade and have, like sanctions so often do, had a horrific impact on ordinary people and zero impact on a repressive government. It's done nothing to stop the human rights violations of the Assad regime, and it has done everything to make the lives of ordinary Syrians and we should note the lives of Palestinian refugees and others who have fled from one part of Syria to another as they were overrun. These people have suffered enormously, even more, because they've now been uprooted two or three or even five different times. As these sanctions ravage Syria, you see a, a global, uh, a very appropriate and moving, really, response of the international community, both civil society and governments, to respond immediately and with enormous levels of resources to Turkey in this devastation. Parts of Turkey were absolutely devastated, and people were saved in the hundreds and probably thousands by the early arrival of equipment and trained personnel, sniffer dogs, all of those things that were flying in in plane loads that left within after the earthquake. But almost none of that was going to Syria. Why? Because the U.S. imposed sanctions on Syria make it illegal with the possibility of international sanctions against any country, any corporation, any NGO, any group of Syrian families trying to do something to save that, their relatives. That's outrageous. I mean, Biden is supposed to be the liberal president, and you, what you're describing to me is using natural resources and uh, disaster to uh, crush a country. Is that true? That has been what sanctions have been used for for generations. We should note that the Biden administration did ease the sanctions under enormous pressure. In the middle of February, they said, okay, we're going to lift the enforcement of the sanctions for at least six months in order to facilitate some humanitarian aid. That was a good move. That was an important move. But it wasn't nearly enough because it doesn't end the sanctions. It simply says we're not going to enforce the sanctions against specific earthquake-related materials to go in. The problem is who gets to decide what kind of hoops are you going to have to jump through? What happens if the U.S. changes its mind next week? The result is corporations and banks and people are very much afraid to take advantage of that opening, the ability to send some goods, because they don't know whether they're going to be stuck with material that suddenly can't get in because somebody says it's not really humanitarian. If you have to send computers, for example, so that people can deal with how to take care of the hundreds of thousands of people who were displaced, who have nowhere to live, who need housing, who need water, who need medical care, you need computers for all of that. If somebody says, well, yeah, but the computers could have a, quote, dual use. This was how we always used to hear about sanctions in Iraq can't allow in pencils because they have a dual use since they have graphite in them. You might use a pencil to make a bomb. The same thing can be happening, and the result is that corporations are afraid. Syria is going to remain off of the international banking system. Saying those words, as President Biden did, which was an important move, was just not enough. 
the sanctions needed to be lifted across the board to have the impact that I think probably President Biden himself and his top advisors were hoping for, which is to let in some level of humanitarian aid. The result has been a very small amount of aid. It's not that none has gotten in, but certainly it took much longer. Far more people died than would have died if the equipment and trained personnel and all of that had been accessible and available to Syria from the moment of the earthquake. Complicated, of course, you know, Paul, because Mm. in the case of Syria, the U.S. is not the only bad actor that's making things worse for the Syrian people. The government has consistently, since the uprising began after the Arab Spring in 2011, there's been terrible repression, terrible discrimination against huge sectors of the population that are living under areas not controlled by the government. And one effect has been the government's decision to close parts of the border, to impose checkpoints, etc. That has made things worse as well. That has been loosened since the earthquake, too. Sanctions are being used as an act of war, not an alternative to war, but an act of war. And all of the things that the regime is doing and others in the country are just made worse by what the U.S. is doing through its sanctions program. How does this tie in with what's happening in Ukraine? Is Russia, Are Russia and China moving in to take the place of the United States to the extent that they can? China is certainly playing a bigger role diplomatically than it has in the past. And in my mind, that's a good thing. Every country should be playing a diplomatic role. The latest Chinese initiative was sponsoring the new peace agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That's filled with all kinds of contradictions and challenges, what that's going to lead to. But the one good thing about it is that it could lead to an end to the war in Yemen, which is in many ways a proxy war between Saudi Arabia now and Iran. It didn't start that way. The Houthi rebels are an indigenous Yemeni component of Yemeni society who didn't ever get support from Iran until very, very recently. But now it's sort of billed as this is the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And the result is that Yemenis are dying in enormous numbers, including now during the ceasefire, because the impact of the closure of the harbor and the closure of the ports for so long by the Saudi-led coalition has led to a huge number of children facing starvation, facing stunting. The humanitarian crisis there is still, according to the UN, the worst in the world. So that agreement to reestablish diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia is certainly bodes well for ending the war in Mm. Yemen. But what it means more broadly is the emergence of China as a diplomatic actor. That's a good thing. If the U.S. and China would compete over who can be better diplomats, that would make the whole world a whole lot safer. Writer and activist Phyllis Bennis. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In national news, this week was marked by Tax Day on April 18th. The United States Treasury Department announced it collected almost $130 billion on Tuesday, compared to $75 billion the previous day. The cash take comes as President Joe Biden has requested $842 billion for the Defense Department and $44 billion to FBI defense-related programs. The total is $28 billion more than last year. Even as defense grows, many Americans have very little idea of where their money actually goes. The program director of the National Priorities Project is Linda Koshgarian. They've released their 2023 tax day receipt. 
finding the average taxpayer paid more to Pentagon contractors than for almost any other government service. The average taxpayer will pay more than $1,000 to Pentagon con- for Pentagon contractors. Um, and that's not necessarily something that we might think we should be doing. Those companies are making enormous profits. They're paying their CEOs multi-million dollar salaries, and they're doing all of that with our tax dollars. We have an opioid epidemic that is ongoing, but the average taxpayer only paid $19 for mental health and substance abuse programs. So we have something killing Americans every day in a lot of communities and causing tremendous pain and suffering, and we're only paying $19 to address it versus money that we're giving for these corporate contractors who are pocketing enormous profits off of our tax dollars. How about prisons and law enforcement and that kind of thing? The average taxpayer paid $20 for federal prisons. The majority of prisons and prisoners in this country are not in federal prisons. For federal prisons, it was about $20. To compare that, you only paid probably about $11 for programs that are meant to end homelessness. Our priorities are skewed. Why would we, folks are in prison because of things like poverty, because of things like, why would we perpetuate those things by failing to invest in things like ending homelessness and pay more to put folks into prison? It just doesn't make sense. Couldn't it be said that this is the result of the political process, that people who vote want more police and want more law enforcement? We have polling that shows that people don't want to invest as much, for instance, in the Pentagon as we do. They would rather reinvest in things like education or infrastructure. Part of it is not what Americans want. It's that the process in Washington is really captured by these private interests. Of course, the contractors want a bigger share of the pie. There are contractors for federal prisons. A lot of those are private. They want a bigger piece of the pie. Not as simple as this is a reflection of what people want. In a lot of ways, it's not. How about global warming and dealing with these other great catastrophes we're looking at? Is there any money going for that? The average taxpayer, this is this is one of the smallest things we actually have. Folks may know about the Inflation Reduction Act and that it's supposed to go to a lot of programs to help address climate change. A lot of that spending hasn't kicked in yet, but it's also not that much. It amounts to less than 10% of the Pentagon budget, for example. In 2022, the figure is that the average taxpayer paid only $6 toward renewable energy and energy efficiency programs. Think about retrofitting your house to make it more energy efficient. That is things like electric car programs, solar energy programs. Just $6. If you think about for the whole year, out of all the taxes you paid, only $6 went to those programs. Debt relief, because that's the big talk. I mean, you have Jim Jordan, who's uh, threatening to cut Social Security to pay down the debt today. Or When you pay your taxes, part of it does go to interest payments. The United States government has to pay down that debt. Part of those payments is interest, just like if you pay a mortgage or if you pay a credit card. Part of that is interest. Part of what the government is paying is interest, too. So this is actually one of the bigger items on your federal tax receipt. If you're the average taxpayer, you paid about $1,700 toward interest on the debt. So that's significant. And how are we creating all this debt? Some of it was for things that are kind of unavoidable, like COVID aid um, added trillions to the debt. We probably all would have been a lot worse off without all the checks that came to individuals, the checks that went to businesses so that they could continue to pay small businesses that were working for them. Of course, there are also flip side stories of large businesses that abused that aid. Some of the things we have racked up debt for make sense. Other things, don't make sense. We've got $2 trillion of debt for 
the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that didn't make us safer, didn't make us better off. The United States can't really argue that it won either of those wars. That's a huge source of debt also. Another huge source of debt is tax cuts for corporations and wealthy folks that were enacted in 2017 and and haven't ended yet. That's not a good way to spend money. How can we change that so that we don't have folks paying $1,700 to pay interest on debt for things that didn't benefit us at all? 1% versus the 99%. How does that reflect it in taxation? The share of taxes that corporations paid back, if you look back to the 1930s and when a lot of the New Deal things were happening, corporations were paying about 40% of our nation's revenues at that time. Today, it's below 10%. They're paying maybe 7% today. Corporations have gotten off much easier than they used to have it. They used to be contributing a lot more to our country's revenues than they do today. So that's one part of the kind of wealth inequality picture is corporations are getting a very sweet deal. You see a lot of people in the top 1% because so much of their income comes from things that we don't tax the same way that we tax work. They get income from investments that we tax at a much lower rate. Many folks in the 1% or very high income individuals are paying a lower tax rate on their income tax return than you or I or than your average person. And that's not the way our system is supposed to be, but we have so many loopholes for them that that's the way it ends up being. If we fixed those loopholes for corporations and wealthy individuals, we'd bring in a lot more revenues. And that amount you're paying for interest on your tax receipt, that would start to go down if we start to pay that off through revenues from those sources. What about offshore? The money that's being stashed by Apple, for example, has $600 billion in a bank in the Cayman Islands that is beyond taxation. That's one of the top ways that corporations hide their profits and hide their revenues so that that's part of what's responsible for the fact that they're not paying the same share of taxes that they did in the past. We've given them so many loopholes and there are proposals for how to fix that. So what we need is is Congress to start to close those loopholes so that corporations and the wealthy can't. Marie Antoinette got a bad rap, but she is uh, attributed to the quote, let them eat cake. Is that what's happening in America today? And how do we get out of that situation? Cake has eggs in it and eggs have gotten awfully expensive. I'm not sure whether they're eating cake. The way we get out of this is by holding Congress accountable. There are folks in Congress who, who want to fix this. There are folks in Congress who want to do the right thing. What we need is for people to start paying attention to all of this for people to start paying attention to making sure that their taxes are going to things that benefit them and their communities and not to things that don't, for people to start demanding that corporations and wealthy individuals pay their fair share of taxes. It's not about just make them pay more. It's they should pay a fair share. And that's not what's happening right now, and it's not what's been happening for a long time. Linda Koshgarian is Program Director of the National Priorities Project. As the cash rolls into the United States Treasury, some veterans are questioning the gargantuan military budget. With its ancillary expenses, the total is well over a trillion dollars, 52% of every dollar paid in taxes. According to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, the budget is being driven by strategic competition with China and includes a 40% increase in the Pacific. This is a strategy-driven budget and one driven by the seriousness of our strategic competition with the People's Republic of China. At $842 billion, it is a 3.2% increase over fiscal year 23 enacted, and it is 13.4% higher than fiscal year 22 enacted. And this budget includes a 40% increase over last year's uh, budget for 
the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. And it's an all-time high of $9.1 billion. And that will fund a stronger force posture, better defenses for Hawaii and Guam, and deeper cooperation with our allies and partners. Retired Marine Corps Captain and State Department Officer Matthew Ho is veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's with the Eisenhower Media Network. Dwight D. Eisenhower is the former five-star general and president who warned the nation against the military-industrial complex in 1961. Ho says... It's all about the money. The grand theme of the Pentagon, the military-industrial complex, the way Congress is involved, it's all about getting rich. It's all about making money. It's all about everybody's profiting in their own way. The generals are getting more weapons. The politicians are getting more campaign contributions. And certainly the weapons manufacturers are getting more profits. Everybody is benefiting. And this is as old as, you know, the American Republic is. Dwight Eisenhower said in his farewell address in 1961 as a warning Americans of the military industrial complex that will lead to more war, more dangerous policy choices, a militarization of our foreign policies and domestic policies, but then just the pursuit of profits, what comes at the expense of that, and what's the offset, what's the trade-offs? And as you said, Paul, to start this, 52%, 52% of what people's income taxes go to goes to the Pentagon, and that's not including the veterans department that's not including the state department that's not including the cia or the nsa it's not including the debt and interest payments on past military spending roughly totals between 150 and 200 billion dollars a year just to pay the interest charges on past military spending past war spendings when you add all that together the current pentagon budget of 885 billion dollars balloons to about 1.3 or 1.4 trillion dollars. Russia spent a small fraction on defense that the United States did. China, and even with all the ramped up war talk, a small fraction of what the United States spends right. on military. The comparison to other nations, and that is inevitably what you will hear members of both political parties, certainly the defense contractors, the pundits on television, the people on Wall Street, saying to defend these gargantuan defense budgets is that we need them because of the threat from other nations. But then when you look and see at the size of these other nations' militaries, you realize just how outlandish those claims are. In the case of China, which spends the second most in the world on its military, it has four times as many people, it's a huge nation. Even if we were to cut our Pentagon budget in half, we would still be spending roughly $150 billion more a year than the Chinese spend. We spend 10 times as much as the Russians do on their military. You have to add up the next 10 nations combined to total what we spend on defense. We spend this much money, and what has the results been? The Korean War, the Vietnam War, where defense spending ballooned, caused monetary crisis for the United States. We were running out of gold trying to afford these wars that we were having in Korea and in Vietnam. Reagan said, we got to have a 600-ship Navy. Now they have like a 200-ship Navy and half of them are leaky. So you spent all this money on this military. What wars have you won? How has their security improved? Where is the stability that the American military has been promised to deliver? Where's the Pax Americana? What has it actually brought about in terms of numbers under reagan they were going for the 600 ship navy or whatever now there's less than 300 ships and we're spending more on the navy than we've ever spent in the history of this country the shipbuilding process in the u.s navy is completely 
completely dysfunctional. We have whole classes of ships that have basically been canceled, spent tens and tens of billions of dollars on these things, and they built a few of them, and these things could barely sail, and I'm not being hyperbolic. Isn't it all wars come down to, in the end, to grunts in the mud, knifing and shooting and strangling each other? That was like in, in the wars in, in Iraq and uh, you know certainly in the battles in Fallujah and Najaf. That's what it came down to. You Americans, we had to go house to house to try and, and hold territory. The true reality of warfare. That's what the Russians are experiencing right. now in Ukraine. You can have all the rockets and missiles and aircraft and satellites, ships that you want. But if you do not have people actually on the ground holding that ground, a young man or woman with a rifle in their hands you are not going to be in control. That's what we found in Iraq and Afghanistan to be true. And that's why the United States fought differently. It's wars in Libya and Syria used proxy forces. The United States does not have to take casualties trying to win these wars, trying to control these wars, trying to control that territory. Uh, that is much more preferable and much more politically safe, uh, domestically politically safe to wage war that way than to wage war like Bush did in Iraq, and then Obama tried with his escalation of the war in Afghanistan. Whatever people are spending on their income tax, just your income tax, about a quarter of that income tax money goes to Raytheon, Lockheed, Boeing, the weapons companies that the Congress appropriated for its budget last December, right before Christmas. The omnibus spending bill was $1.6 trillion. Of that, a quarter of that goes to the weapons companies. Retired Marine Corps Captain and State Department Officer Matthew Ho is veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Closer to home, Mayor Eric Adams held a news conference on Wednesday pleading for the federal government to do more to help the city settle more than 50,000 refugees who have come to the city in recent months, sent in buses by border state governors and others with a bone to pick with the city's liberal administration. After housing refugees in underutilized hotels, the city moved the men to congregate shelters in Red Hook, Brooklyn. The mayor says the federal government has forgotten New York. A stroke of a pen, the federal government must redesignate and extend temporary protected status, TPS, for Venezuela, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Sudan, South Sudan, Cameroon, and any of the African countries. It must also expand and extend access to humanitarian parole for asylum seekers already in the United States and process at the border, as well as increase the number of United States citizens in immigration offices. We must bolster those numbers. We have a heavy, heavy influx, but we don't have the population and the personnel to process them. We want to ensure that the application can be processed quickly and the current backlog is drastically reduced. The mayor says he expects as many as 100,000 refugees to flood into the city eventually. Meanwhile, there was a bright spot for immigration activists as a leader of the new sanctuary movement won the right to stay in the United States after a 30-year battle with immigration authorities. Jean Montreville, a co-founder of the New Sanctuary Coalition, won his fight to remain in the United States on Tuesday. In an emotional decision delivered to a packed courtroom at 26 Federal Plaza in Manhattan, immigration judge Kyle D'Andelay dismissed a 33-year-long deportation case against Montreville, who's now 54. Moments after the decision, Montreville was ecstatic. What was the first thing that went through your mind when you heard the decision? Oh, my God, about time. It's been over 20 years. 
finally, I, I found. Has the injustice been dealt with? You think by the, the judge side? Well, I mean, we can think differently now about the system, but a lot of pains. It's hard to forget those pains, but it's getting better. Montreville was 21 and a legal resident in 1990 when he was convicted of conspiracy to distribute cocaine and began an 11-year prison sentence. He was a livery driver. They said he was ferrying dealers down the East Coast. After his release, he became a model citizen, married and raised four children. But a 1996 law gave teeth to an earlier deportation order, putting Montreville into a deportable program. With support of the New Sanctuary Movement and the Congregation of Judson Memorial Church in Greenwich Village, he was plucked from a deportation camp in 2010. But under the anti-immigrant administration of former President Donald Trump, Montreville was deported to Haiti in 2018. Supporters managed to get his drug conviction overturned in Virginia, paving the way for his return to the United States. On Tuesday, the case was dismissed. There were nervous moments as dozens of supporters gathered at a nearby Dunkin' Donuts before the hearing. And to take it out of the heartbreak it's done to him and bring him into the fresh air of freedom. Good and gracious God, You are here with us today, and you're here with all the other people marching into the federal building today, day after day, yesterday, and likely tomorrow. And they take your spirit, your Holy Spirit, with them. Please pour it out on us today, on Jean especially, on those who love him the most, on the gathered group here that we may live into hope that the freedom he gets today soon be available to everybody, everywhere, all the time. Amen. Amen. The senior minister at Judson and Memorial Church is Donna Shaper. She says it's been a long struggle to bring Jean Montreville home. Shaper is the founder of the New Sanctuary Coalition based on an ancient Christian principle that every church should be a place of refuge. I got involved with Gene and his family at Families for Freedom and we were just starting to hear great rumors about how sanctuary was happening around the country and uh, we said you know I think we'll join so we became part of the national movement very early so we were the New York chapter and then there was a Chicago and LA chapter but we never centralized but the name sanctuary came back and then we called it the New Sanctuary Movement because it wasn't the old Sanctuary Movement. It was people from all over um, the world. And then uh, we redefined Sanctuary so that it wasn't physical. What are, sanctuary, that goes back to medieval times. You exactly, exactly. But we felt that physical Sanctuary was too limiting, symbolic, and frankly, all the immigrants we knew didn't want to take it. Why, why be away from their family? Why be locked into one building all the time? Why be symbolic when there were literally thousands of people? So we developed a, a definition that sanctuary was moral, spiritual, financial, legal accompaniment. And then trained at, our, at the peak of it, we had 3,000 volunteers accompanying people in here well-trained and so that's what it became. What do you expect today? I expect he's going to get free. It's confident. Free confidence. 
positive? I am very confident. Uh, <laughs> I never thought we'd undeport him. Why do you think he got this far, though? Having an inside game and an outside game all the time. Very good relationships with all the electeds in New York. And we had a Virginia campaign, too. And the Virginia campaign was designed to get his uh, priors removed, and it was effective. Have so you done that? We did it. Uh, so he's clean record right now. He has a, all a very close, clean record. Do you mean it's over? Uh, that's why I think it's over. <laughs> but also, it doesn't hurt that Biden is president. <laughs> Montreville says although his life was precarious under a deportation order, it got worse under President Donald Trump. I've been fighting for a long time. You know, I've always had an order of deportation. But all the president, all the administration that came into power, you know, they really put me in the back. You know, oh, okay, he's a good guy. We're not going to bother him. But as soon as Trump became president... He wanted me out. A minister at Justin is Mike Abusi. He says his congregation was committed to witnessing. Well, we really don't know how to be a church or a faith community unless we are accompanying and witnessing to all of the injustices of this immigration system and also holding the human beings who are actually at the center of it being affected by that injustice. We've been involved in this for a very, very long time. And we really do believe in the theology of accompaniment, the spirituality of when you have a group of people who are coming in, something spiritual happens for the person at the center of it. And also just on a purely practical level, when the judges and the ICE officers see that there are witnesses there, something different happens. And they don't try to disappear people in the way that they often do if there are no witnesses. And on at least two occasions, Montreville came to a scheduled meeting at the immigration court only to be snatched up and even deported without notice. The possibility kept Montreville's supporters on edge, even as they expressed optimism. Another leader in the new sanctuary movement is Ravi Ragbir, who has faced the possibility of immediate deportation several times. Ragbir says having supporters present in the courtroom sends a message. Even though I myself am facing deportation, the fact that I could accompany others in the same situation opens or makes people more feel less afraid. They don't have to hide when their loved one is going up, going into immigration hearing. So it's important that I show up for especially Jane and others who have been in the middle of the, the struggle so that we can show support for him. But again, to also let people know that they don't have to be afraid. Ragbeer says the intent of immigration authorities is to spread fear in the immigrant community. You remember in 2018 when they took me away with the intent to deport me, it was to send a message to the larger community that Ravi, who has so much support, they could deport me. Who are you, right? The fear would have been very tangible. Fortunately, it backfired and, you know, it became more of a, a rallying point. Yeah, it is to send a message. It is to terrify the community, especially the undocumented community, that they will keep quiet. They will not be able to realize the full potential. Ravi Ragbir is a leader of the New Sanctuary Coalition. And Jean Montreville adds the war on drugs that ensnared him as a teenager was a predecessor. No one really represents us in Congress. We don't have no voices, like I used to say. So we always fall the, the victim. It used to be the war on drugs, now the war on immigrants. 
And as you know, when Trump became president, he was really tough on immigrants. That's when I got deported. Do you think it had to do with Trump? Definitely, because even the ICE officers personally told me, listen, my friend, you see who we got as president now? When they came to pick me up. Ravi Ragbir says it's when people show up to support and to protest that change happens. If you look at Federal Plaza, years back, before the pandemic, they used to have this place covered with barricades. There hasn't been a protest here for a year or two, so they took it down. They, they feel safe right now, right? So maybe we need to step back up, come back and do this every week or regularly to show them that we are not going away and that they need to have respect and actually treat our people, our community, whether you are documented or not, treat our community with respect. And Montreville asked why he fights so hard to stay in the United States, where he's experienced so much injustice, says it's because of family. It have always been about my children, my kids. I never wanted to live without them. I think kids and their parents, it's, it's a basic human right. Children should have the rights to live with their parents. And one of Montreville's four kids was celebrating... What's your name? Janaya Heard. Right. And it was amazing feeling. It's been a long time. It must have been more than amazing. Yeah, it's, it's like you were, we were anxious coming in here today because we never know who you're going to get in front of. And the judge was very heartfelt. And I think that he really saw the, the change and the development of my father over the years. Mm-hmm. So what, what happens today, later today? We celebrate. Celebrate. My brother said bottles on him. <laughs> we're going to pop a bottle of champagne. <laughs> Thank you so much. With his son at his side, Gene Montreville walked proudly through the lobby of the Gargantuan Federal Building, a smile giving way to a serious and determined look. And that's the news. You've been listening to The Torch of the Progressive Radio Network. You can hear the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>